This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements, so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day so what makes a life a good one in the coast guard we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Bismarck, North Dakota at the North Dakota Heritage Center and uh, taking your calls at 888-887-3837. That's 888-88-PETER. And if you can't get through on the phones, you know the drill. You email me to peter at petergreenberg.com. With your name, phone number, question, or problem, we will solve it right here on the air. You can also follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Peter S. Greenberg or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Peter Greenberg. Lots of stuff to talk about in the news. And, you know, the most important thing is not just the news event itself, but giving it context and giving it some uh, perspective. Uh, For the fourth time in in less than a year, we had uh, computer systems crash at an airline. Uh, We had... United Airlines happened, we had JetBlue happen, we had Southwest happen, and then we had Delta. And no matter what you think the cause was, um, it was really bad news if you were flying Delta uh, for about two or three days. And, and the reason for that is, once an airline system goes down, it takes them between, for even an hour, it takes them between 8 and 12 hours per hour that they're down to get back up to speed operationally because you have... Airlines out of position, you have crews out of sync and schedule. Many of them will go illegal in terms of their time, and you got to batch them up again to get up and running. So while it may have taken Delta about 56 to 60 hours to get back up operationally, for the passengers, some of them never got back up. They got easily they either got their tickets refunded or they rebooked for, for many days later, uh, or they didn't travel at all. Um, and so what is the takeaway here? Because we're in an era now where when we talk about a computer failure or a computer shutdown, it's not about just the computer that books your flight or gives you your seat assignment or your upgrade or your window seat or order your meal, whatever that is. No, this is the computer that also does flight dispatch. It does weight, load, balance, fuel. It, it does routing. It does aircraft location and aircraft allotment. And if, if you can't do flight dispatch to your pilots, then you have a complete ground hold on your entire fleet. And that's what happened with Delta. Um, there are some people who think that the airlines haven't invested enough in cybersecurity. Uh, we still don't know what really happened. Or are they vulnerable to be hacked? Some would say yes. But either way, when, the, when someone says to you, oh, we lost our computer system because we had a power failure, that could be misleading. 
if I have a power failure and I have something that's a sophisticated system, it would stand to reason I have a backup generator or, or, or alternate power that can kick right in. So it may not have been just a power failure. It may have just been a failure, and that, allowed, and that led to their inability to power their computers to do what they do. But either way, there was no backup that, would, that was sufficiently kicked in to, to help out. Delta ended up losing tens and tens of millions of dollars uh, in lost revenue uh, and lost productivity. How much productivity was lost by their passengers who couldn't even get on a plane? Or who couldn't get to where they were going. So somewhere down the road, someone has to get smart and not do the one-stop shopping computer. Maybe you have three or four separate sets of computers, one that deals with flight dispatch only, one that deals with frequent flyer programs only, one that deals with airline reservations only. Uh, somehow, you know, all things, one-size-fit-all doesn't really work if you lose the all. Uh, so that's the takeaway there. But wait, there's more. And that is, if you are on a flight, forget a computer failure, although it would be part of it. If you're on a flight that either is canceled or delayed and delayed ridiculously, what are your options? Well, in the old days, the major airlines had what were called interline agreements with other carriers. And there was sort of a gentleman's agreement that allowed one carrier to take the other carrier's passengers at a reduced rate to the other carrier to basically save them and vice versa in the event of what we would call generally a flight irregularity, more or less anything other than caused by weather. Uh, up until recently, American had those kind of interline agreements with Delta, United. You know, years ago, of course, TWA and Pan Am and all the majors had them uh, and vice versa. Uh, now, the ones that don't have the interline agreements and have never had the interline agreements Airlines like JetBlue and, and, and airlines like Spirit and airlines like Allegiant, so that if you're on their airline and they have a problem, you're not going anywhere. That ticket can't be endorsed over to anybody else. You need to know that. But here's what you didn't know until the Delta incident. A couple of months ago, American ended its interline agreement with Delta. So when the Delta shutdown happened, no Delta passenger could be rebooked on Delta on American for the same ticket price. It was no longer an even wash. So you had even more passengers stranded. So if you're going to be on a plane that's either delayed or canceled, the very first question you need to ask the gate agent, and hopefully the senior gate agent, is who do you interline with and get me on one of those flights right now. Don't call. Don't go on the website. Have a conversation because your options get diminished exponentially every moment you wait. Uh, now, there's also a caste system. If you're holding a first-class ticket, they'll probably take care of you ahead of the guy with a Lonely Planet guidebook wearing the Birkenstocks. Um, so understand that's the way it is. You, you know, money talks. But bottom line is you need to ask that question, who do you, do you interline with? And that will uh, at least go a little bit towards uh, mitigating your pain. Uh, now, the other thing we've been following in the news, of course, is the crash landing of the uh, Emirates uh, 777 in Dubai. We will be covering that for a while because we don't expect a final report for at least the next nine or ten months. We're still expecting a final report on the onboard fire that happened uh, to the British Airways plane last year in Las Vegas, another 777, another plane that, that involved a full evacuation of the passengers. And we'll be talking about that in the next couple of weeks because what are the lessons there? Really quite simple. If your plane is on fire, 
you do not go to the overhead compartment and remove your carry-on bag and kind of like stroll down the aisle. Get off the plane. Take nothing with you. Uh, it's amazing in both cases that there were no fatalities because both planes were fully on fire. There's just no arguing that. And it was only a matter of seconds before at least one of them, in the case of the Emirates plane, exploded. Uh, the Las Vegas guys at the airport were able to get the fire out pretty quickly in the British Airways incident. But the point remains, if you're going to evacuate a plane and you have to evacuate the plane, take nothing with you. Toto? Feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Dakota. Do you know where the national parks are here? Do you? Well, my next guest does because she's the chief of interpretation at the, by the way, speaking of national parks, who better to be named after Theodore Roosevelt National Park? And her name is Eileen Anders. Hi, Eileen. Hi, Peter. Yeah, you heard my introduction uh, about how many people don't really know how many national parks there are to begin with or even where they are. But Theodore Roosevelt, as, as the president, was so instrumental in the establishment of national parks, isn't it great that you've got one named after him? I think it's very appropriate, actually. And why? Well, Theodore Roosevelt, during his presidency, set aside over 230 million acres of public land for the American public to enjoy. So it belongs to all of us. During that time, he established five national parks, or rather, he signed the legislation for five different national parks, and he was the first president who took advantage of the Antiquities Act to establish 18 national monuments by presidential proclamation. Now, is there truth to the story that he came on vacation, shot a bison, and said, hey, this is fun, let's have a national park, something like that? Well, not exactly. <laughs> he, he did come on vacation. And he, he did shoot a bison. He did shoot a bison. I just want to make sure we got that down. Okay. He was on a... 10-day hunting trip to get that bison, and it, that was at a time when there were very few bison left in the western part of the United States. What a great time to shoot one. Yeah. Yeah. He wanted to get one be before they were all gone. and Well, there's something, there's something of a disconnect there. Let's shoot one before they're all gone? Well, yeah. It is yeah. Like Come on, Eileen. A little way, bit tough there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, was, that was actually part of the culture in those it, days. You're absolutely right. And Theodore Roosevelt, while he was on his By the way, do you, know, do you know what Theodore Roosevelt said about the bison after he shot it? Tastes just like chicken. Okay, okay, <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. While he was on his camping trip, um, he was with his guide, and he woke up in a puddle of water, and his guide thought this little scrawny guy from North New York is going to give up now and just want to go back home. This was before he had shot his bison roosevelt jumped up and said by golly this is fun by godfrey this is fun <laughs> yeah that's not and, and where was godfrey when he said that no but the point is he continued on and his his view widely opened and therefore he was able to say wait a minute we got to do something about this 
He, he did. On his first trip to North Dakota in 1883, when he came out to hunt a bison, he fell in love with the place. He loved the adventure. He got to know a few of the local people. He really admired their hard work. And he put down about $10,000, $14,000, which in today's money would be about a quarter of a million dollars. Asked a couple guys to buy some cattle for him and to, to build a ranch house over the winter. Um, for him? Yes. Yes. Um, over that winter, he returned to the New York State Legislature, and on February 12th, his first child was born, Alice, named after his then-wife, Alice. Um, two days later, he got a message from his brother to come back to New York City because his wife and his mother were very ill. He got home to New York. His mother had passed away in the morning of typhoid fever. Later on in that day, his wife Alice died in his arms of Bright's disease, which is a kidney ailment. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. We've been speaking to Eileen Andes, the Chief of Interpretation and Public Affairs at the Theodore Roosevelt National Park with our cliffhanger. Theodore Roosevelt returns back to New York after his trip. His, he's losing relatives left and right. And? Theodore Roosevelt wrote in his diary every day. And on February 14th, Valentine's Day, the day that his mother and his wife died in the same house. On, on the, the same, same day. day. Oh, my God. In New York. He wrote, the light has gone out of my life, and he put a big X on the page. He was heartbroken. And then he had a little bit of a political setback, and he was really a very broken man. So he returned to Dakota Territory with the intention of becoming a cattle rancher. He stayed at his Maltese Cross cabin, which is currently in the south unit of Theodore Roosevelt National Park. But he needed some solitude. So he took a horseback ride up to an area that he had heard of where he established his Elkhorn Ranch, which he later called his home ranch. And that was the area where he really did his cattle ranching and where he, he went back and forth between Dakota Territory and New York over the next 11 years. How big is the park? The park is a little over 70,000 acres. And does it include those ranches now? It does not include the original Maltese Cross Ranch, although the cabin is located in the park now, about seven miles north of where it used to be. It's behind our visitor center, and people can come visit it. The Elkhorn Ranch unit is a, the smallest unit of Theodore Roosevelt National Park. It's 218 acres. And it is part of the park that we preserve. What would you say is the signature element of the park? The Elkhorn Ranch is actually the most important part of the park culturally and historically. That's where Roosevelt spent time healing and ranching cattle. And he had fun being a cowboy. He really liked the work and he really liked the people. The bison were nervous. Um, 
I, I don't know if they were nervous. <laughs> I would have been, had I been a bison. But yeah. what Roosevelt saw during that time was the results of overgrazing, um, the fact that the bison population had been greatly reduced, elk populations were dropping. He saw it firsthand. He did. And he really started to think about conservation. Um, all the while, his time in North Dakota helped him heal emotionally, spiritually, and physically. And therein lies the, the impetus for the national parks. Exactly. The Theodore Roosevelt National Park commemorates Theodore Roosevelt's time in Dakota Territory, which was a really formative time in a young man's life. And he said, I never would have been president had it not been for my time spent in North Dakota. And how many presidents can claim that? One. <laughs> Absolutely correct, and you win nothing for that answer. <laughs> uh, but of all the national parks, you don't get a lot of visitors. Well, it's not a super slow park. It's not really busy like a Yellowstone or Yosemite or Grand Canyon. And somebody might, might argue those are overvisited. Some could argue that, yeah. and they're, those are much larger than our park. We last year got a little over 580,000 people. This year, visitation's up about 35%, so we're figuring we'll be well over 600,000. It's, it's not even three-quarters of a million, but there are some parks that are small enough to get under 100,000 visitors a year. And by the way, let's go back and talk about what he did during his presidency. Five national parks... 151 national forests, 50 bird and wildlife refuges, and I don't think no other president has ever done that much in, in that small amount of time. No, no other president has. And he, that's why he's known as the conservationist president. He felt that <clears throat> any loss of habitat, <clears throat> excuse me. It's okay. Any loss of habitat or a species diminishes all of us and he saw the need for preserving land for future generations and he spoke about that and he wrote about preserving things for our children and our children's children you know what's remarkable about what he did is that he wrote the legislation in such a way that people couldn't mess with it you know once you did it it was there you know people it's something you go back and try to revise later or try to re repeal no one can repeal that well, the, the Antiquities Act was passed in 1906 during his presidency, and the intent was of the legislation was to preserve some small, discrete places of scientific and historic significance, which is what Roosevelt originally did until he set aside the Grand Canyon as a national monument and and then things really changed. Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go And joining me now, a Native American historian who knows all of this with a great name. The best name ever, Dakota Goodhouse. How are you, sir? Good. Thanks for having me here. 
Yeah, and and you heard my introduction. How many different uh, either tribes or Indian nations are represented here uh, in North Dakota? Yeah, good question. Uh, in North Dakota, we have five First Nations, uh, Standing Rock, Fort Berthold has Mandan, Hidadza, and Arikara. Then there's the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa, the Spirit Lake uh, Sioux, and the Sisseton Wapiton Oyate. Say that three times fast. <laughs> <laughs> and most Americans don't know that. Well, I'd say uh, most Americans, yeah, probably don't know that. But I feel in North Dakota, we have North Dakota studies in fourth grade, eighth grade, and then again in high school. North Dakotans know yeah, that. Yeah, North Dakotans know it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we also know how to, the correct way to pronounce Sakakawea's name. Say it again. Sakakawea. Okay, I'll let you say it. <laughs> I have a career to protect. But the bottom line is, when you're coming to a state like North Dakota, and even starting right here at, at the Cultural Center, I mean, you've got the heritage to look at, but then you can actually get in your car and not have to drive very far to be up close and personal with it. Yeah, the Standing Rock Sioux Indian Reservation is just about uh, maybe 50 miles south of Mandan, which is right across the river from Bismarck. Uh, is, that the is that the James River? No, the Missouri River. Oh, okay. Yeah, right along the Missouri River, right. just south of Bismarck, Mandan here. And open to the public? <laughs> it is, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the if you're thinking uh, reservation era days, it's, uh, we're not like that anymore. Uh, the federal government isn't like that anymore. People can freely. They finally became enlightened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And basically, for those people who want to visit, what can you do there to immerse yourself in the culture without it being uh, touristic in a show? And I'm talking about really learn something. Boy, uh, well, if somebody wants to really immerse themselves in the history, culture of our First Nation people, I would suggest perhaps staying uh, at least a week to perhaps as long as a month. And um, during that time, if you're not engaging with the public, with whatever public works projects you might be able to get involved with. And, you, and you can. Oh, you can, yeah, yeah. Give, give me an example of how I can get involved. <laughs> um, well, a good place to start might be... Um, Maybe you're a Christian, maybe you're uh, a different culture group that comes to any reservation, and you might get involved with the local people through an outreach program. You might uh, work on uh, painting houses, maybe building uh, a handicap accessible ramp, <laughs> or, or other. Maybe, but, but, maybe. but in the process of doing that, I, I always encourage people to do this. In the process of it, you're doing it with the people who live there. You learn everything. You, 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 you can't escape the culture at that point. Yeah, yeah, you really can't. Uh, you're visiting with the people, perhaps even um, learning to say uh, the niceties like hello and thank you in their language. Uh, I might even suggest listening to the radio if you're in North Dakota. Standing Rock has KLND uh, FM uh, 90, I think that's the channel. Yeah, and uh, it could be heard up here in Bismarck, Mandan. Uh, if you're passing through, tune in. And what are you going to hear? <laughs> You'll hear broadcasts both in English and Lakota. The Lakota part I got. See, I can yeah. pronounce that. <laughs> but a lot of Americans mistakenly think that, if you, as you said, Indians equal reservation equal casino. <laughs> yeah, I, I was ignoring casino up until now. but <laughs> yeah. No, well, I had to bring it up, right? Are there casinos? Yeah, there are. There are. Uh, all our reservations here in North Dakota have uh, have casinos. Standing Rock has two. Standing Rock is where I'm from. And that's a source of, of, of important revenue for you. 
Uh, well, for the Standing Rock Sioux Indian Reservation, it certainly is. For me, no. I, well, you know that. I, what I'm saying, for the for the tribes and the nations that are there. Yeah, yeah, I would yeah. say, at, uh, at least on Standing Rock, in many of our reservations, no one individual gets payouts. Uh, maybe some tribes do that, but in North Dakota, no, no, no one individual. No, it's, it, uh, what I meant is that it goes to the community. It, yes, exactly. New roads, new homes. Uh, yeah, education. This is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. Looking for adventure. And whatever comes our way. The bottom line is. There's got to be some sort of a clearinghouse. There's got to be some sort of a center point of information where I'm not going to be inundated with so much stuff, but at least I can start to learn. Well, I think a good place to start would be here in Bismarck, North Dakota. And uh, that would be at the uh, North Dakota Heritage Center where we're at. Right. And um, By the way, an amazing building. I mean, you have two wings there that I've seen. I mean, that you walk through. Uh, but the exhibits are great. Yeah, and they they go they include geologic, uh, First Nations occupation, and uh, late peoples. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what about the topography of North Dakota? How did that shape uh, the various Indian tribes and nations in the development even of the state? You know, how did how did it shape the lifestyle? How did it shape um, enduring lifestyles? I should say. Boy, well, I can tell you this: the wind is on the Great Plains is certainly a big part of our culture. And, uh, for and not our, to be underestimated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's rarely a day without the wind. And those days are abalakela, which is uh, with windless, quiet. Um, but we have several words to describe the wind alone. And it's such a part of the culture. Let's um, see. Windy, really windy, incredibly windy. <laughs> oh, my God, it's windy. Run yeah, for your life. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'd, I'd like you, just for example, to look at your fingertips on your hand, uh, the patterns on your fingertip. For our native people, for Lakota people, those patterns tell us the direction the wind was blowing on the day we were born. And I think that's a beautiful thing. <laughs> wow. And, yeah, and I share stuff like that. With and then if you're, if you're a really boring person, it was a windless day. <laughs> yeah, you then have no prints, yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, give me another one of those great legends that we can apply to today. Well... Um, since the wind is such a big part of North Dakota, there, there's a And it's also part of the mythology, too. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to share uh, at least one, um, one quote that's in, uh, that's in Lakota. And um, I think uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing to share with, uh, with people, especially if they're experiencing um, uh, difficult times. And so th this phrase would be, Dakushicha. Um, and that would mean, uh, translate as, uh, all the bad things will blow away. Once well, back, uh, tied to the wind. Yeah. So the good, it's sort of like saying, in my life, the, the good news is there's never a dull day, and the bad news is there's never a dull day. <laughs> when it comes to the wind, the good news is it's windy, the bad news is it's going to blow it away if it's bad. Yeah. Or, yeah. or, or vice versa. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Uh, no yeah. matter what, it's going to blow away. No, no matter what, it's going to be windy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's how, you, and in a way, let's take that symbolism further. It's how you as an individual or as a nation adjust to that wind 
that will determine your longevity. Yeah, yeah. And I think the um, the visitors who first came and decided to stay in this beautiful country, <laughs> when they when they came, I think they had a hard time adjusting to the landscape, and the wind was a big part of that. And, um, and it shaped them. It did. It did. It certainly did. Uh, in it fact, shaped their architecture. <laughs> had to. Yeah. Well, the, the doors face south. <laughs> Yeah, or face east. Uh, if you put your doors any other direction, well, you're probably going to get snowed in. See, and somebody had to learn that the hard way. I guess, yeah. <laughs> right. Where's Wilbur? Eh, he put the door in the wrong direction. We haven't seen him in years. Yeah. Or he blew yeah. away. Or, or he blew. <laughs> How do you protect your land now? Boy, that's a, a wonderful question. Um, on Standing Rock uh, today, as a matter of fact, uh, they are uh, my own people are lining up on the side of the road to protect uh, our Fort Laramie treaty rights. And so uh, they're, they're protecting... Which, which mean what? Water rights, is, uh, in particular, uh, the, the Dakota Access Pipeline is, uh, is going through today, and my people, my relatives are down there um, blocking that. Because without water, you're in big trouble. Yeah, without water, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. in fact... Uh, the, the phrase nowadays in this past few uh, past few weeks, past few months, has been miniwichoni, which is uh, water of life, and without it we wouldn't have life. So uh, I didn't mean to take such a serious turn with you. No, ask, in fact— Ask me a serious question. No, I've got to give fact, me a serious answer. A little bit later in the show, we're going to be talking to, uh, to Judy Schwartz, the author of a book called Water in Plain Sight, and she talks about the whole movement of soil preservation right here in North Dakota— almost the capital of it because if you can't protect the soil you're not going to have water at all yeah yeah it's amazing wow. there you go keep that going this is flight 372 on swa the flight attendants on board serving you today Teresa in the middle david in the back my name is David, and I'm here to tell you that shortly after takeoff, first things first, there's soft drinks and coffee to quench your thirst. But if you want another kind of drink, then just holler. Alcohol or beverages will be $4. If a monster energy drink is your plan, that'll be $3, and you get the whole can. We won't take your cash. You got to pay with plastic. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. And joining me is someone who knows a little bit about the state. Actually, she knows a lot about the state. She's uh, partly responsible for me even sitting here today because she's the curator for the State Historical Society right here in Bismarck. You know everything there is to know about North Dakota. Yes or no? Um, pretty maybe, close. Pretty maybe, close. Claudia yes. Berg. <laughs> I mean... When you talk about North Dakota, you have to talk about geology. You have to talk, I mean, you talk on rocks and soil and wind to be able to understand. I mean, when you walk into the building outside, what do I pass? Petrified wood. Correct. Right? The geology of North Dakota. Tell me more. Well, when we designed the Heritage Center, we wanted to have the introduction about landscape of North Dakota. The geology, the geography is really that conduit into North Dakota history. And, so. and then everybody who came to North Dakota heading across America. Yes, yes. So we started with land formations with 600 million years ago, explaining North Dakota and coming up to present day. Well, as you started to assemble this amazing amount of information, what was the biggest surprise for you? 
um, how long construction takes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's when, about the building, I know. Yes. And by the way, this is but, a beautiful building. Yes, thank you. Yeah, but forgetting the actual physical building, okay. I'm talking about the information. Um, probably how important the landscape is to the history of this area in that the trails that animals created across the landscape are the same trails that the settlers followed. That the settlers, the railroad, the interstate, all of that. There was natural land formations that just became those natural conduits for movement. The way I would describe North Dakota, and tell me if you think I'm wrong, is this is a state that, in in terms of American history, and the way that most people study American history, tends to be forgotten until you realize how much stuff really went on here. Absolutely, that we're on the northern border. It's on we're in the center of North America. There's a great deal that happened here. Here's a surprise: we're in Bismarck. We're in the Central Time Zone. Yes. We're not in Mountain Time Zone. We're in yes. Central. You're almost in Mountain. I I know that, <laughs> but we aren't. You know? yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then when you see about all this, uh, how it all converged, right? Yes. I mean, and it really paved the way for everybody heading west. Yes. Well, and it is. And um, with all the transportation going east and west, and earlier transportation went north and south. It was the rivers. So even with the steamboats and that kind of transportation and then going into the railroads and then interstates and now air transportation, most of that is east and west as well. But, it had, but the east-west had to start with the settlers heading east-to-west, yes. truly blazing new trails because they really weren't there. Well, they were in some respects. Yeah. But, I mean, earlier on we have a Native American history here that goes back centuries. I mean, you think about the uh, pyramids in Egypt. We had civilizations here at the same time. So we have a very rich, deep history right in North Dakota, which, of course, spreads out regionally and across the nation as well. And most people don't know that. Absolutely. That's why they need to come and visit. What a wonderful segue. (laughs) Hey, there's also part of the history of North Dakota that I remember. Uh, Minot, right? The B-52s. Absolutely. The Cold War. Absolutely. I mean, this was the Strategic Air Command place. Yes. Of all places in the world, it was here. Yes. And growing up, I mean, one of our bragging points, we were the third nuclear power in the world. We had two air bases. We have two missile wings. We had the B-52s. By the way, I think you still have the B-52s. Yes, we do, and we still have a missile wing as well. And now one of our historic sites is a former missile site. So now you can come and visit a real missile site, go down underground and experience what that whole time period of the Cold War was really like. I was told, and I haven't found it yet, it may be in North Dakota, I'm not sure, but they took an old converted, like, Nike missile base or or missile site, right, for the ICBMs, and they converted it into a small hotel. You can, like, spend the night there. (laughs) Unless you're really claustrophobic, (laughs) you know, right? Yeah, no, with our site, you can go down and you see the chairs, you see the two keys, that needed to be turned. And by two people simultaneously sitting more than six six feet apart. Yes, yes. It's a fascinating story. It's a very interesting time in North Korea. Well, I grew up during the Cold War, so to me it was like we were hiding under our desks. Yes. Were you hiding under your desk? yes, yeah. Duck and cover. (laughs) (laughs) As if that was going to protect us from a nuclear blast, our little wooden school desks. Yes. No, and in our Inspiration Gallery, the last 200 years of North Dakota history, we talk about the Cold War, and we connect it up to war and conflict in this part of the country from the very earliest times with Native American tribal conflicts 
through the Indian Wars period, but then also our involvement in world wars and conflicts up to the Cold War, and then with the soldiers in the worldwide conflicts today. Sure, so. because you're supplying some of them. Absolutely. And it's an interesting story just to weave that time period together. So you can see continuity and changes, similarities, and then differences as well. Well, if you're coming to North Dakota, head to Bismarck, come to this building. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Now our radio clearance over. That's Clarence over. Over. Roger. Huh? My next guest is uh, on another network. We don't like to talk to him, but but he's on the NBC affiliate here, KFYR TV. He's been on on this show for 25 years in in, in the industry, uh, with a show called Off the Beaten Path. And and what's interesting is it almost sounds like redundant because so many people look at North Dakota itself as off the beaten path. You're going one step beyond. You're showing off the beaten path to North Dakotans. Cliff Naylor, how are you? I'm really good. Thank you very much. So. Anything you're going to tell me is going to be new to me. I'm telling you right now. <laughs> and, and new to my audience, which is great. I love that stuff. So, you know, what defines for you an off-the-beaten-path opportunity, experience, location, destination in, in North Dakota? Well, the way that I describe my series is that I travel across rural North Dakota and tell stories about unique and interesting people and places. Right. And the people and places that I do stories on are fascinating, but untold because being in the television business you need to get a story on every night so if you have to travel three hours to a really great story and then travel three hours back and then edit the piece and, and then edit right. the piece it's not going to make it on the news that night right so you don't do the story you do stories within your you know driving range sure so when i first came to kfyr i came as a photographer and i would go out into the country and shoot stories with other reporters right and i'm a city boy i was grown and uh, born and raised in fargo so really had never even been a on a big, farm a big city a like big fargo city, a big oh city my like god fargo. Okay. so i got you out, city boy yeah i got out into the country and i started seeing all this stuff and i i would travel around and do ag stories by the way <laughs> saying you got out into the country from fargo <laughs> is driving three minutes what that's right <laughs> Wait, we're out here in bismarck now. hey look no i spent time in madison wisconsin three minutes outside of madison <laughs> i'm in the country you know right so I would see all this stuff, and I'd say, what's that over there? What, what's the deal with that thing over there? And, and Al would patiently explain it to me, and, and I said, has anybody ever done a story on that? And, no, nobody's ever done a story on that. And I said, well, it's interesting to me, so I think it's interesting to other folks. So in my spare time, I started doing some of these stories. Uh, one of the first stories that I did was on the Bohemian Hall which is about 10 miles south of Mandan. And we were going to do an ag story, and I saw this building with strange lettering on it. And I said, what's that place? And he said, well, that's a Bohemian Hall. And I said, well, what's a Bohemian Hall? And he said, well, that's where all the Bohemians who homesteaded in the area got together on a Friday or a Saturday night. They all spoke the same language. They all had the same, you know, ancestry. So they all gathered together and drank and danced and told stories. And uh, a local musician did a story about it. Uh, Chuck Suki uh, wrote a song called Saturday Night at the Hall. And uh, so my story, I gathered a bunch of the Bohemians together that used to dance there and reminisced. And then Chuck came and played his uh, accordion and sang 
Saturday night at the hall and just did a story on how folks just used to gather. There was no radio. There was no TV. No, there was no br- Internet. That's what brought them together. <laughs> that's what brought them together. Yes, yeah. And, and uh, they just had a, had a, had a great time. The, one of the guys told me, he said, you'd be down, no fire codes back then. You'd be down in the, in the <laughs> cellar of the Bohemian Hall. And when they would do their dances where they would shimmy across from one side of the hall to the other, he said, you could see the support beams sway in the basement as the bulk of the crowd went from one side of the building to the other. So that's how I, I got started doing these stories. You know, when I was going to school in Madison, Wisconsin, and getting out three, four, five miles out of town, then 10, then very bold, 20. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, what I was coming across, and I bet you have too, are the farm auctions. Yes. Come on, the farm auctions have got to be the best. I did a story because another one of the things that interested me is as you go through North Dakota, you see all these abandoned farms. Yeah. And, of course, I'm wondering, what happened there? So I, I asked Al Gustin, again, the farm director, can you put me in contact with a, with a farmer that you know, is associated with one, with one of these abandoned farmsteads? And yeah. he said, yeah, I think I can. So I, I got a guy, and we went out to his farmstead. And the story was it was uh, abandoned in the 60s. The, the dad had a stroke before the boys were ready to take over the farm. There was nobody to, to run the machinery or whatever, so he had to sell everything off at an auction. Yeah. And the guy said, I remember my dad, who couldn't walk or talk, sitting in the cab of his truck, watching his whole life auctioned off in front of him yeah. as the neighbors came in and bought the machinery or whatever. And they, they, were, they already had houses and barns. They didn't need the buildings. So the buildings stayed. That was The it. buildings stayed. And then, of course, the family left. And then the buildings continued to deteriorate. So that was the, the story of at least one of those abandoned farms. But I will tell you, that when going to a farm auction is amazing. Yes. Because you will see things sold there that you, you think somebody just made it up. Like, you know, you know a 1963, you know, Ford Falcon uh, with 40,000 miles on it. Yes. One owner. Yes. Right? And, or, and and being sold for like 600 bucks. Sold. I'll mm-hmm. buy it. You yeah. Know? Yeah. One of the, the, the first story that I did when I started my um, series was November 2nd, 1995. And I remember it because I'm rewriting that story for a book for tourism. And it was the Dale and Martha Hawk Farm. And it was up in Wolford. So I thought, okay, where, where am I going to start this series? And I thought, I'm going to do it on a farm. And this is a, a kind of a farm that's dedicated to farm life. And I go into this place, and there's literally hundreds of things. And two things caught my eye. There's this, if you can imagine, a huge hamster wheel, about 10 feet tall, <laughs> made out of wood. And there's a little... This is starting to sound like a Stephen <laughs> King novel. I'm sorry. This, okay. A little door at the bottom. And you open the door. And this is before electricity. You put your dog in there. No. The dog starts walking uphill, moving the huge wheel, and it pumps water for your livestock out on the prairie. So you don't have to go carry water out there anymore. The dog, as long as he's walking, is pumping water to your livestock. Then they had another thing. And then one day the dog got smart. (laughs) (laughs) Another one about the size of this table here. It's made out of kind of little pieces of wood like lath and plaster, and it looked like a little treadmill. And I said, what's that? And they said, well, this is a dog-powered washing machine. So you'd put your dog on this little treadmill, and the dog would walk, and then you would have a tumbler with a bunch of pulleys and gadgets attached to the end, and the centrifugal motion of the dog walking would tumble the washing machine and wash your clothes. And then then the dog got smart. (laughs) And then you could take that off and put a butter churn on. And then the dog would churn the butter. All of this without electricity so that 
the humans who are the farmers who had more than enough now, to do where, on the farm. Now, where is that machine displayed today? It's in, it's in uh, Wolford at the Dale and Martha Hawk Museum. There you go. And uh, it's uh, up near Devil's Lake. And I just talked to the guy. And then they have a, a picture next door of, it as a, of a very angry dog. <laughs> <laughs> the dog didn't mind. I mean, I imagine he got a treat or something after he better, got, yeah. got through washing the clothes. <laughs> now, can we see some of your stuff online? Yes, yes, KFYR TV. Um, we've got our we've got our stories uh, online. And uh, but this, what's but what's the website? KFYRTV.com. Thank you. Okay. And, and then, in fact, the story I did last week. Now, this is going to probably startle some of your audience. But as you drive across North Dakota, you see these signs that say, "Be nice." Right. Be polite. Have a great day. Well, Newman Signs, which is a big billboard company in Jamestown does public service by just putting these signs to remind people of their manners across the interstate. So you're driving along and you're listening to whatever you're listening and here's this big sign that says, be polite, be nice, be kind. Hey, welcome to North Dakota. <laughs> welcome to North Dakota Nice. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. Joining us now, Kyle Blanchfield, who uh, knows a little bit about this state. I mean, in looking at your at your little biography here, Kyle, I mean, <laughs> you've been a waterfall hunting guide for 30 years? Yep, just about. Have you found some waterfalls? I there's mean, you're a hunting guide. You... <laughs> yeah, there's a couple out there. And, and what's interesting, you, you mentioned the words North Dakota, and people don't immediately think waterfalls, do they? No, uh, waterfall is in the bird. Ah. Uh, yes. Okay, now it's becoming clear. <laughs> All okay. Right. Describe what a waterfall then is. That bird. Uh, ducks and geese primarily. Okay. Yeah, but this is this area in North Dakota. This is part of the, what we call the Cateau Prairie in in the Bismarck area. Up by us, we call the Drift Prairie, and this is a big area where all an, a lion's share of the of the natural reproduction of ducks and geese occur in North America. So you are in the in the backyard. What we call the duck factory. So basically, if I just sat here and went, <laughs> we'd be good. Right off the grass here at this. At the, I don't know if the security guys would be too no. appreciative of that. Around but the, they're everywhere. <laughs> but they're everywhere. We do have a lot of birds here. Yeah, this is a real wild country. I mean, then you get away from the city and it's it's real pretty country. I wish yeah, but let's let's put it in perspective. You get, you talk about get away from the city. Your cities are small. <laughs> good point. Right? Yeah, thank you. I think what? I mean, the Bismarck population is under, what, 75,000? Yeah. And, that's and, stretching and a count and a couple of cats right? and dogs, yeah. And then, and then what? Behind, uh, above that is Fargo. Right. Is about 101,000, something like that? Yeah, about that. Fargo-Moorhead Metro, yep. I mean, you have less than a million people in the entire state. Considerably, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> and keep <laughs> the rest of them out. <laughs> no, no, but, but We like visitors, that. though. We love to have people come see what we got. And then you'd like them to say bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily. We'd like to keep a few of them once in a while. I know. And if you catch him, if you catch him, you kill him, <laughs> right? Because you're the hunter, <laughs> right? No, but in all seriousness, what's the one thing that people just do not understand about North Dakota? Well, I think um, vastness is what, is a good word for it. I think genuine. Um, I think natural. I think a lot of single word terms really sums up what North Dakota is because it is it's a vast, beautiful, wild 
and uh, natural state of with abundant natural resources. And so it's fun as a, as, a, as a guy that's in the resort hunting and fishing business, it's fun to show people that aren't from here what we have because it's really an eye-opening wow experience for an awful lot of people. Now, you mentioned hunting and fishing, so now i got to ask the next question. I'm an East Coast guy. Okay? Right. You know what that means? If yeah. I'm going to spend that much time trying to catch the fish, it's dinner. <laughs> you do catch and release? Oh, we do catch and release, and we do like to eat a few of them once in a while. I'm not going to lie But when Peter. nobody's looking, or, yeah. or can I actually keep well, them? Well, we have a lot of uh, – our big fish up here is walleye fishery. We're a world-class walleye fishery in Devil's and, and you stock And you stock it? Um, they were originally stocked, but they're 100% naturally produced now. Wow. Yep. And I can catch and keep them? Absolutely. You know, the, we, we recommend the bigger trophy fish to uh, get a good picture, put it back in the water, have fun. But keep the smaller ones, and they're a great meal. And these are you know, come out of fresh water without any, you know, we don't have any DDT chemicals or anything to worry about. They're good, clean fish to eat, and uh, it's a great uh, benefit of going out. And it's a, it's a great meal. But you do have that challenge because you have a lot of farmland here. You have a lot of people out there doing grazing and cattle mm -hmm. you have to come up with that delicate balance so we that do. you don't have that runoff for sure and that's something that we're very very serious about we have a great game and fish department that monitors that our state health department with water quality uh, initiatives and standards are extremely good and the reality is we don't have a lot of uh, big industry that are, that are creating some of those issues and nothing wrong with that in certain places have done right i get it but um it's it's something that we take very seriously and we hold very dearly because we don't want to mess up a great resource we have now with your fish and game guys i'm going to go back to this question again so what's my limit of walleye i can catch and keep you can keep five a day and go home with 10 which is well, pretty keep good. five a day oh I, I get it and your time you know total number yeah you can time. catch all of them you want as long as you put them back but if as far right. as you want to take take uh, back to camp and and enjoy so i can come out to the woodland resort hang with you catch some walleye and we can have dinner. Absolutely. I just want to make sure. So <laughs> it's like not only just catch and keep, it's catch and keep and cook. Yeah, and our guys in, in our restaurant will even cook them up for you if you don't want to bring or can them up. Or can I cook it with them? Sure you can. Yeah, now I we're heard talking. you're good at that. We have, we have some great chefs that, that would love to uh, have you with us. Well, they would teach me a few things. Yeah. <laughs> now, earlier in the show, we, we had uh, Dakota Goodhouse on uh, talking about you know the history of the Native Americans. Right. But one of the things that was part of their mythology was wind. Right. You got wind. We got a lot of wind. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a natural fact up here, okay? And we've had a lot of it this summer, which is kind of wearing me out, I'm not going to lie. Uh, but <laughs> it's not like it's 30-mile-an-hour winds every day. I mean, there's kind of a little bit of lore there. Everybody thinks North Dakota was constant wind. It's not. Walk outside So right basically, now, when I go fishing with you and right. I catch the fish, and people say, what'd you catch? I caught a windy wallow. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. 
No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.